here is surprised that nobody pays much attention to the fine details and specifics of arcane constitutional matters until they become a crisis. Witness, for example, the spectacle of election night 2000, when it briefly seemed the Electoral College vote might have been tied. Newscasters scrambled for their constitutions and then tried to explain how, not to mention why, the choice would then go to the House of Representatives voting by states rather than individually, no less. The classic example is impeachment. Most people casually use impeachment to mean removal, which it isn't, but everybody thinks it is. Until, that is, the rubber meets the proverbial constitutional road and we all re-rediscover how it all really works. Or doesn't. A document that changed the world. Articles of impeachment seeking the removal of President Andrew Johnson passed by the U.S. House of Representatives. 1868. I'm Joe Janes of the University of Washington Information School and yes, we're going to talk about impeachment. No, not that one, and no, not that one either, and not the one that didn't work but kinda did. Instead, we're going to focus on the first impeachment of a president, though that's not the first impeachment ever. That distinction, sort of, belongs to William Blunt, a senator from Tennessee. The House tried to impeach him in 1797 for conspiring to help Britain in capturing Spanish territory. The Senate, instead, dictated that, constitutionally, only each House of Congress had power of removal of their own members. Since then, it's been applied mostly to judges, including Supreme Court Justice Samuel Chase, who was acquitted, the Secretary of War in 1876, who resigned, and, now, three presidents. In all, eight men have been convicted and removed from office, three of whom were also disqualified from holding further office in separate votes. In that first attempt, we find articles of impeachment, and though they have featured in each of these 20 federal cases, they are neither specified nor required in the Constitution. The concept of holding governmental officials accountable by impeachment, and for that matter removal, comes to us from Britain, where it was applied to royal ministers beginning in the 14th century, falling out of disuse for a while, and then revived by the early 17th century. The idea was picked up, most notably, by Alexander Hamilton. In the Federalist Papers, number 65, he references the prosecution of the abuse or violation of some public trust. The word itself derives from the Latin for catch or entangle and enters English in 1380, meaning to hinder or impede. The Constitution specifies that civil officers may be removed following impeachment by the House and conviction by the Senate for treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors, an intentionally vague provision which has caused no end of confusion and argument down the decades. None other than Gerald Ford, presciently, in 1970, told us that an impeachable offense is whatever a majority of the House of Representatives considers it to be at a given moment in history. In the constitutional drafting process, some believed that elections were the best cure for misconduct or maladministration, fearing that congressional removal processes would become akin to votes of no confidence bringing down governments in a parliamentary democracy. 
To date, only about a third of all impeachments have specified some flavor of criminal conduct. Only three reference bribery and, so far, no accusations of treason. We wound up with only a few specifics, not even the vote required to impeach, so that's just a simple House majority. The Senate does require two-thirds to convict in a trial overseen, though not really meaningfully run, by the Chief Justice when the President is involved. In other matters, the President of the Senate, in other words, the Vice President, presides, leading to the fascinating conundrum of how that would go if the Vice President was the one on trial. Hmm. A great deal has been written about all the presidential impeachments from perspectives legal, political, historical, and otherwise, so we can leave much of that aside, apart from a quick review from the 1860s. Andrew Johnson, just weeks into his term as vice president, assumes the office following Lincoln's assassination and is thrust into the messy process of reconstruction and the very sharp divisions on how to handle it. He, as a Southern Unionist Democrat, antagonized a Congress dominated by radical Republicans who, after the 1866 elections, gained veto-proof majorities in both houses. After he made a number of spectacularly bad and politically unwise decisions, including denouncing a number of congressmen as traitors, they'd had enough. The nominal cause for seeking his removal was violation of the Tenure of Office Act, passed over his veto in 1867 to protect members of the cabinet from removal without Senate approval. Johnson badly wanted to be rid of Lincoln's radical Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, and after a months-long saga, he appoints a new interim secretary on February 21st, 1868. Three days later, on the 24th, the House votes overwhelmingly, 126 to 47, almost entirely on party lines, to impeach him, followed a week later by the adoption of 11 articles of impeachment in three chunks on March 2nd and 3rd. They are presented to the Senate on the 4th, and the trial begins the next day on March 5th, taking place over the next several weeks, with the Senate voting first on Article 11 on May 16th, 35 to 19 in favor of conviction, exactly one vote shy of the required margin. Later votes on two other articles produced the same result, and then they just gave up without voting on the rest, and it was over. Accusations of bribery to influence votes by cash or appointments notwithstanding. All the nine Democrats voted to acquit, joined by ten of the Republicans. None of them ever held elective office again. Our concern here, however, is on the documents themselves. Articles of impeachment are obviously among the gravest, most serious documents any lawmaker will encounter or decide on, so they must be taken seriously, in the moment as part of a process, and also in their own right. The Constitution is not only intentionally vague about impeachable offenses, it also makes no mention of the means by which the House demonstrates or records its findings. As a result, articles can take many forms, and thus they look somewhat different. Recent ones are relatively concise, fewer than a thousand words in 1998, something over 1,500 in 2019, roughly the same for those passed by the Judiciary Committee before Nixon's resignation in 1974. Not so for 1868, 
those 11 articles ran to nearly 5,000 words, including accusations that Johnson made with a loud voice, certain intemperate, inflammatory, and scandalous harangues, and did therein utter loud threats and bitter menaces against Congress and the laws of the United States duly enacted thereby amid the cries, jeers, and laughter of the multitudes then assembled. The articles fulfill a number of roles, mostly pretty evident. They record the nature of the accusations at issue, convey that from the House to the Senate, trigger the process of trial, and form the core and framework of the case, and then, later, serve as a record for posterity, historical memory, and future precedent. They're not an indictment, at least not in the strictly legal or criminal sense of the word, though they resemble them strongly in function, and they don't actually have to work to work. Impeachments have resulted in a number of resignations, including Nixon. If he hadn't resigned, coincidentally during a meeting of the Senate Rules Committee when they were reviewing their process, the acts almost certainly would have fallen, though we'll never know. The committee did finish their work, by the way, building on rules originally adopted in 1868. Johnson was not convicted, but we got one step away. When the Senate convicts an impeached official, the decision is immediate and final, and admits of no judicial review, either of impeachment or trial. Whatever happens, happens, and stays happened. While judges have been removed and a few disqualified, which is bad and no doubt disruptive, Imagine for a moment what would transpire if a president was convicted. Presumably, in that moment, they're removed. The vice president would assume the office and conceivably take the oath of office from the chief justice on the floor of the Senate where the deed had just been done. A potential political spectacle on an operatic scale. All that said, Let's think about these. What's special about them, these documents that form such pivot points in our national experience? Momentous? Yes. But special? Well, if we look at them carefully, I don't think so. The, the things they do, the roles they play, recording, memorializing, initiating a process, and so on, are all pretty ordinary, and lots of kinds of forms of documents do similar things. We might say they're unique without being functionally or formally distinctive. At the same time, whatever the circumstances or motivations, noble or venal, they are extraordinary things, and as documents they tell us how people view and viewed the presidency, our government and our relationship to it, and further, whether or not we ever do remove a president from office, we could. No one is immune to scrutiny and consequences. A critical lesson, one always worth repeating and relearning, no matter how many times it's needed.